for the rest of you, if you would, open up in your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110. And as you are turning there and find that, I'm going to ask that you would stand. We're going to honor the reading of God's Word in that way. So stand to your feet. Find Psalm chapter 110. Church, the most important words that will be spoken today are the words that come out of this book. Because this is the Word of God. I'm going to read all of Psalm chapter 110, all seven verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. And filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Church, this is the Word of the Lord. You can have a seat. As you're sitting down, if you want to also turn to the book of Hebrews, and if you've got a bookmark or an extra pen or something, you want to stick in the book of Hebrews around chapter 6, 7, somewhere in there, uh, we're actually going to be uh, in the book of Hebrews some today as well. But don't, don't uh, lose your place in Psalms, okay? We're going we're to spend most of our time there in Psalm chapter 110. But you can be finding the book of Hebrews. Now, last week, we entered into one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Do you remember what doctrine it was? The doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ. And we're learning of Christ from Psalm chapter 110 as we study the various doctrines of the Christian faith from the book of Psalms. I hope throughout this past week you have been asking yourself the question that I posed to all of us last week, who do you say that Jesus is? That's not a question that I came up with on my own. That's a question that Jesus asked his disciples. That's the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Is what Jesus asked them. Now, if we answer that question correctly and then believe the truth concerning who Jesus is, God guarantees forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. That's why it's such an important question. Last week we said that Psalm 110, written by King David, is all about Jesus, for no mere human could fulfill these exalted words. As great of a king as King David was, who wrote this psalm, as great a king as King Solomon was, who came after him, none of them, no king, no earthly king, could fulfill these exalted words. One writer put it this way, As the ages rolled on, it was seen that its words, talking about the words of Psalm 110, were not fulfilled in David, but pointed forward to one who was at once David's son and David's Lord. My desire as we study this psalm which exalts Jesus Christ as the king and the only king who is worthy of our ultimate allegiance is that this truth leading to action would permeate our lives. And here's the truth. I gave it to you last week. I'm going to give it to you again because we're still in this same psalm. Church, only Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, and so only Jesus should sit on the throne of our hearts. That is worth repeating last week, this week, next week, maybe every day of our lives. 
If we wake up and say, only Jesus deserves, is worthy to sit on the throne of heaven. He's the only one who's there, and therefore only He should sit on the throne of our hearts. Friends, the exaltation of Christ is deeply theological and deeply practical. Sometimes we see those two as disconnected. We study things about God, but then we live our lives over here. And then we come to church and we study things about God, and then we leave and we live our lives. We don't see the connection between the two, but they are very much connected. Your practice, how you live, is always rooted in your theology, what you believe. For instance, when you choose to engage in sexual activity outside the bond of marriage, your, ac- your actions reveal that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. When you choose to cheat on a test or on your, on your taxes, you reveal that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. When, when, when you call people names who disagree with you over political issues, then you reveal that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. When you look down on others, maybe because of the color of their skin or because of where they live or because of how much money they make or any other... Uh, crazy reasons we we look down on other people, you reveal that Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, when you choose to say, extend Christian forgiveness to someone over and over and over who has deeply hurt you, you reveal that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. Or maybe when you choose to give up a job or give up a hobby that consistently keeps you from gathering with the church, you reveal that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. Or, or let's say you choose to say no to the peer pressure around you, tempting you to, to, to say yes to sin, but you say no. Even though it means you might be made fun of, you reveal that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. When you sacrifice material possessions and earthly comforts in order to say, give more money to missions or to even go yourself to those who've never heard the good news of Christ or maybe to serve more in your church, you reveal that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. Here's my point. Theology, what we believe about God, is deeply practical. And our practice, how we live, is deeply theological. And so we turn to God's Word not only to inform our minds, our thinking, but to impact how we live our lives, moment by moment, day by day, choice by choice. Now Psalm chapter 110 teaches us that Jesus alone should sit on the throne of our hearts. And it does so, and I mentioned this last week, by giving us three very distinct and clear pictures of who Jesus is. But these pictures then lead to an appropriate response. Last week we looked at the first of those pictures and responses. Verses 1 through 3, just as a a, a matter of review, we said this last week, that Jesus is the divine king. That was the picture that verses 1 through 3 painted for us. A divine king, and then the response is, we ought to submit to his rule. Jesus is the divine king, that's who he is, and therefore we ought to submit our lives to his rule. Let me say yes to whatever Christ says. Jesus is fully equal to God and has been exalted by God to his right hand as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And so we should submit to his rule. But here's the thing. If we are not careful, we could examine our lives, see that our actions reveal that Jesus is not on the throne of our hearts, be convicted of that sin, and, and, and then walk away saying, I need to, I need to do better. I, 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 need to, I need to try harder. I, I need to clean up my act. I need to turn my rebellious heart into a submissive heart. You say, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, that sounds like a great response. The problem is, we can't do that. We can't change our hearts. You see, the question is not merely a matter of choosing to submit. Oh, I'm not submitting, so now I'm going to start submitting to Jesus. 
There's some problems facing us. For one thing, if, even if we could just choose to submit today, that doesn't make up, that doesn't pay the price for all the times in the past that we've chosen to rebel against God. Nor does it make up for all the times in the future where we will choose to rebel against God. Sin must be paid for. And me choosing to do one good thing doesn't pay the price, doesn't make up for all of the wrong things that I've done. The problem is really deeper than that. It's more fundamental of a problem, foundational of a problem. The problem is that our hearts, by nature, choose to reject Jesus as King. We choose, by nature, to not submit to Jesus. So it's not even a matter of, oh, I've I got to choose whether or not I'm going to trust and uh, whether, whether or not I'm going to submit to Jesus. My heart says no to that every single time. If you remember when we studied the doctrine of sin a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm chapter 14. Remember those piercing words? It says, there is no one who does good, not even one. And so if submitting to Jesus is a good thing, which it is, the Bible says no one even does good, not even one. So our choosing to submit to Jesus doesn't make up for our sin. And really, we can't even make that choice on our own. Because our hearts are sick with sin. So the appropriate response to being convicted of not submitting to Jesus isn't just choosing to change our lives and change our behavior, change how we think. There's a different response. We can summarize our problem this way. We can't submit to Jesus as king because our hearts are dead in rebellion against God. But praise God, church, Jesus is not only a divine king. Jesus is also a great high priest. Jesus is the priestly king who has paid the price for our sins and done everything necessary to give us new hearts that are devoted to him, to serve him, and to submit to him. Church, the second picture we see of Jesus in this passage, which should lead us to exalt him as king in our lives, is the picture of King Jesus as a priest. And as we see and understand that Jesus is a, key, a priest king, then we should respond by trusting in his intercession. There's a truth I want to share with you today. Jesus is the priestly king. That's the picture that's painted for us in verse 4. Then the appropriate response, so trust in his intercession. There is a choice that we need to make. There's a choice that we all need to make. But it's not a choice to clean up our act or to start doing what is right. The choice we need to make is to trust in the intercession that Jesus has made on our behalf as our great high priest. Verse number 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, most of the time when I sit down at the table um, at home with my children and my wife, most of the time we sit there as a family, um, I pick up the Bible. We have a Bible that sits right there. Um, it's, our, it's, our, it's our dinner table Bible. And I, and I open it up and we read. And we've been reading through the Psalms. So we started in Psalm chapter 1 and we just read a couple of verses. And, and uh, it's amazing. And you just kind of add a little verse here and there each day or every other day. It kind of adds up. So it was, it was interesting. This past week we were in Psalm chapter 110. We made it Psalm chapter 110. And, and that was what we're studying here at church. And so we were looking at that Psalm and, and I was reading it. And I finished verse number 4. Uh, my oldest, Letty, said, uh, she said, what's a priest? What, what is that? What's a priest? I said, that is a great question. Maybe, maybe we know, we have this picture in our minds of what a priest is, but if somebody said, what is a priest, how would you define that office or that role? 
See, if we don't understand what the role of a priest is, we're not going to understand the magnificence of this verse and what it teaches us about Jesus. Let me give you a definition. A priest is someone who helps people worship God by interceding between them and God through means of a sacrifice. Say that one more time. A priest is someone who helps people worship God by interceding between them and God through means of a sacrifice. Now, that probably begs the question, then, what does it mean to intercede? What does that mean? Well, to intercede means to be a go-between, between two people, or, 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 to, or to stand in the gap between two people who maybe are at odds with one another. Now, why would people need someone to act as a go-between between them and God? Why can't we just go straight to God ourselves? Well, the answer is that we are sinners. We have rebelled against God. God is holy, and therefore sinners are barred from His presence. Like Adam and Eve were barred entrance back into the Garden of Eden by cherubim with flaming swords. Like the people of Israel were barred entrance from the Holy of Holies, that innermost place in the temple. They were not allowed to go in there, and they were separated from it by this really big, thick curtain. We are barred entrance from the presence of God because of our sin. However, God wants people to worship Him. He created us to worship Him. And so he, he, all through the ages, He has made ways for people to worship Him. And, and so He's created this way uh, this, through a priest. And so God created this office of priest so that people would have a way to be represented before God. And the next question is this. Y'all know I like to ask a lot of questions, okay? So I'm going to ask a lot of questions. What gave the priest the right to go before God? How was the priest allowed to go behind that thick curtain into the Holy of Holies? Well, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And so the priest could only intercede on behalf of the people. He could only ask God to forgive people if he brought a sacrifice. And so the priest would kill an animal as a substitute sacrifice in place of sinners so that God's wrath would be appeased, satisfied, and therefore the people then, with their sins forgiven, could worship God. So a priest is someone who helps people to worship God by interceding between them and God through means of a sacrifice. Church, the king of Psalm chapter 110, whom we've said is Jesus Christ, is not only the divine king, he is also the priestly king. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But just like Jesus was not just any king, just like he's not any king, he's also not just any priest. I want you to notice with me in our time remaining three ways in which Jesus' priesthood is unique. And these three ways should lead us to exalt him as king by trusting in his intercession as our great high priest. The first is this. Church, the priesthood of Jesus is final. The priesthood of Jesus is final. Verse 4 says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh God, all capital letters in your Bible, Yahweh God, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, what is it that Yahweh God has sworn? What is it that Yahweh God will not change His mind concerning? What's His declaration that you are a priest? Who is this you? It is the divine King that we studied about last week in verses 1 through 3. It is Jesus. You, Jesus, my Son, you, the High King, are a priest. You ever get frustrated when someone keeps changing their mind? Ever, ever happened to you? Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's the boss. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My wife is shaking her head like this. I'm getting the evil eye. My wife doesn't change her mind a lot. So uh, uh, I'm, I guess I'm blessed. Um, guys, don't say amen. 
uh, that would get you in hot water. Well, I'm actually not going to pick on my wife for right now. I'm going to pick on my, my kids for just a moment. So in the mornings, uh, we're getting breakfast ready, and my wife and I will ask our kids, uh, what kind of milk do you want? Um, now, when I grew up, you just had milk. But somehow, my, my kids have worked their way into having, like, options. So they have chocolate milk, they have strawberry milk. I never knew what strawberry milk was when I was a kid. Uh, but they, they, so we pour, we got syrup, we can mix it, you know. And so we'll say something like, uh, what do you want for, for, what kind of milk do you want? You want chocolate or strawberry? I want chocolate. I want chocolate milk. Okay, great. Chocolate it is. No, 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 no. I want strawberry. I want strawberry. Okay, strawberry it is. Get strawberry syrup. Pour, go, right, 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 it's about to drip out. This, like, loud cry comes from the room. No! I want chocolate. And I'm like, oh, just make up your mind, right? And in that moment, uh, uh, the Lord reveals to me how often Jesus is not on the throne of my heart, right? Because I respond and say, would you just make up your mind? Would you just? It's so frustrating, right? It's so frustrating. Friend, we will never, ever, ever be frustrated by God changing his mind when it comes to salvation. It's final. It is final. It is forever and ever centered upon Jesus Christ, our Lord, our great high priest. Jesus is the way to God the Father yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. The finality of God's declaration that Jesus is His chosen and only means of providing sinners access to Himself should drive us to do two things. First, it should drive us to trust in Jesus as our high priest. We must trust in Him if we haven't. Because there will never, ever be another valid option to have your sins forgiven. If you're waiting around for some other way other than Jesus, stop waiting around for another way. God's never going to change His mind. It is through Jesus, our priest, that we can be saved. And it's only through Jesus. And so we need to trust in Christ. But then also the finality of Jesus' priesthood should encourage those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation to remain steadfast in looking to Jesus alone for our salvation. No matter what the world says, no matter what false teachings and gimmicks and other ways or, or really false ways of salvation come along, we can rest assured that they are wrong and that Jesus is the final way. He's the only way. It's not because I said so. Not because any other person said so. Church, it's because God has said so. I told you we're going to be in Hebrews some today. And so we're going to go there for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got your Bible open there, you can follow along. If not, just listen as I read. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going, to, I'm going to read eight verses. So I'm going to start in verse 13. For Hebrews 6, start in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we... Here's the encouragement. We who have fled for refuge, that means fled to Jesus for refuge, trusted in Him, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Church, in moments, and they will come, they will come, in moments when we are tempted to doubt our salvation, we can have confidence that heaven is our home if Jesus is our path. If we are going through Christ to get to heaven, we can have confidence that that is where we will be one day. Somebody say amen. It's final. We don't have to worry about God changing his mind. Next, we see that the priesthood of Jesus is forever. Church, the priesthood of Jesus is not only final, it is forever. Verse 4 could not be clearer. You are a priest forever. Do you know what forever means? In Greek or Hebrew or any other language? It means forever, okay? Forever means forever. If you're planning to go on a 500-mile trip, 500 miles, you're going on a 500-mile trip, and you're going to go in a rental car, and so you contact the rental company and they say, all right, we got two two options for you. We got we got car, car this car right here. It's a great car. It will it will get you 400 miles. We guarantee you can go 400 miles in this car. We got this car over here. We guarantee that it'll go 500 miles. Now, which car are you going to choose? All else being equal, you're going to choose the car that's going to go 500 miles. Why? Because it's a 500 mile trip. You're going to choose the one, you're going to rent the one that will provide the service you need for as long as you need the service. You don't want to get part of the way there. You want to get all the way there. Listen, every single person will either be rejected from God, rejected by God forever, or they will be welcomed into the presence of God to enjoy His presence forever. I don't know about you, but I for one want to enjoy the presence of God forever. The problem is that I've sinned against God. And so if I, a sinner, want to enjoy God's presence forever, not just today, but tomorrow, not just tomorrow, but the next day, not just the next day, but for all of eternity, then I need a priest who always lives to make intercession for me. I need a forever priest. And church, that forever priest is Jesus. No mere human could be a forever priest. It must be the divine king who, being God, had the power to conquer the grave by rising up from the dead. You see, all the priests who came before Jesus, they died. They died, and that's why there were many priests. But Jesus' priesthood is superior because he lives forever. And therefore, he's worthy of our exaltation. He's worthy of our trust. Jesus can and does intercede on our behalf forever and ever and ever because He lives forever and ever and ever. Go again to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The beautiful words. By the way, as you're finding that, Hebrews chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 is basically a sermon on Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. It's really what it is. I'd encourage you to, this, this week, read chapter 5, 6, 7, 8. Read all the book of Hebrews. Um, it's basically one long sermon there, but, uh, but read at least those chapters. Chapter 7, verse 23 through 25 in Hebrews. The former priests were many in number, 
Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, talking about our great high priest, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever. What's the result of that? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That means all the way to the end, all the way through all eternity, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This should come as good news to our ears and our hearts. Listen, as people, and we said, remember, we, don't forget the doctrine of sin. It's not fun to talk about, but we spent, we spent a, whole, a whole week talking about that a couple weeks ago, the doctrine of sin. As people who have an endless supply of sin, we praise God that we have an endless intercessor. Amen. So we've seen that Jesus' priesthood is final, it is forever, but there's one more aspect that we need to see. The third aspect of Jesus' priesthood is this. The priesthood of Jesus' church is faultless. The priesthood of Jesus is faultless. It's faultless. It's final, it's forever, and it's faultless. Notice the last phrase of verse 4. And I know some of y'all been, y'all been, when are we going to get the last word here? We're going to talk about this, this guy. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to have to do some work, okay? So if you need to take a deep breath, all right? Take a deep breath. Crank that thinking cap on for just a minute, all right? We've got, we got to do a little work. We're going to look at some scripture. Um, we're going to think deeply, but it's going to be worth it. Jesus is a priest after a certain order. That means that he belongs to a certain branch or line of priests, a certain order of priests. And what order is it? It's the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Now, who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, let me say a couple of things before we answer that question. First, let me say that Melchizedek is a guy who is clouded in mystery in the Bible, and yet what we know about him from God's Word is enough. What I mean by that is that the Bible does not answer all of our questions that we may have about this guy named Melchizedek, excuse me, but it does give us everything we need to know about Melchizedek. And then secondly, let me say this. The purpose of Melchizedek is to point us to Jesus. The purpose of Melchizedek is not Melchizedek, okay? The purpose of Melchizedek is to point us to Jesus. And so if we walk away from this very brief study of Melchizedek, more in love with Jesus than Melchizedek has served his purpose, even if we walk away still with some remaining questions about this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Okay, so who is he? What is meant by God's statement that the divine king is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek is mentioned in three places in the Bible. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. He's mentioned in in, um, uh, Psalm chapter 110, where we're at today. And then he's mentioned in Hebrews. Now, he's mentioned several times in Hebrews, chapter 5, 6, 7, all through there. Um, And really, that argument that's being made goes through chapter 8, even though you don't see his name in chapter 8 of Hebrews. So three places in the Bible. I'm going to start with Genesis. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can. We're just going to be there for a moment. I'm going to read you kind of the background where we are introduced to this guy. So Genesis chapter 14 Uh, beginning, I think, in verse 17, we have a little background, and I'm going to start reading in verse 18 of Genesis uh, chapter 14. Abraham has just returned from defeating some enemies, five kings to be exact. And then we have these verses. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the whole story of Melchizedek. I mean, I read you all of it. And then it just goes on from there. It jumps back into the story of Abram. And we don't hear anything else about Melchizedek until Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Now, I want to point out a few things that we do learn from Genesis chapter 14. First, uh, the Genesis passage tells us that his name is Melchizedek. That name is a combination of two words in Hebrew, the, the, the word for king and the word for righteousness. And so we just know from his name that he's called king of righteousness. He's also in Genesis called the king of Salem. Now, Salem sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for peace, which is the word shalom. And so he is king of righteousness and he's king of peace. And then verse 18 in Genesis chapter 14 tells us that he was a priest of God most high. That's pretty much, we could dig a little bit more into the details of Genesis 14, but that's pretty much what we know about Melchizedek from Genesis. King of righteousness, king of peace, and priest of God. Then he's not mentioned again until King David, writing Psalm 110, says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of the coming Messiah, speaking of Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's all we had. We might have to just chalk up the meaning of Melchizedek to the secret things which belong to the Lord our God and have not been revealed to man. However, we have the book of Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews devotes a considerable amount of time to this man named Melchizedek in the context of explaining how Jesus is our great high priest who is better than all of the priests who came before him. The writer of Hebrews goes back to this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 5 verses chapter, uh, through chapter 8. Now, of course, now we don't have time to study all, all four of these chapters in the book of Hebrews. So I want to give you a, a few summary points and read a few select texts. I've already read one passage from those chapters, speaking of the finality of the priesthood of Jesus, and that was Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. We already read that. Continuing on from there, we see that one of the main comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus is the second point that we looked at, which was the eternal nature of the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is priest forever. See, part of the mystery of Melchizedek is the fact that we're not told anything about his beginning or his end. Now, in a book like Genesis, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you know that they can't hardly mention somebody without saying who his father was, right? So-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And a lot of times, they don't just give the daddy. They give the granddaddy and the great-granddaddy and the great-great-granddaddy. I mean, they give you the whole genealogy, especially when it's someone who's really important. And from the writer of Hebrews' standpoint, Melchizedek was a pretty important guy. And yet, we know nothing about his beginning, and we know nothing about his end. All of a sudden, he's there, and then he's not there, and we don't know anything about where he came from or where he's headed. What's the point? Well, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this interesting fact and says that Melchizedek's unknown beginning and ending, along with his name and the place of his rule, foreshadowed the coming Messiah who would have no beginning nor end because he would have always existed, because he would be fully God. Listen to the words. I'm going to pick up with the last verse of chapter 6 in Hebrews and then read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7. Where Jesus had gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, now chapter 7 of Hebrews, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth 
part of everything. He, speaking of Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so Melchizedek points to the eternal nature of Jesus' priesthood. Jesus is priest forever. But what about this word faultless? Why, why did I give you that as our final, kind of final point today? The, the priesthood of Jesus is faultless. Where are we getting that from? Well, it has to do with this phrase, after the order of, in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. After the order of Melchizedek. You see, all of the priests who had come before Jesus came after the order of the Levites. They came after the order of the Levites. You can read about this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 22. I'm going to summarize, but you can follow along in uh, Hebrews 7, verse 11 through 22 if you want to. The tribe of Levi was chosen by God as the tribe of Israelites who were to be priests. So if, if you were a priest, it was assumed you were, you were a Levite. Only the Levites could be priests. And they represented the priesthood, here's the, here's the kicker, according to the law of God. Now what does the law of God represent? Well, the law represents God's standard of perfection, which man can never attain on his own. According to the law, every person, including all the priests, including you and me today, all stand guilty. We are all at fault for breaking God's law. And not only are we faulty in our sin, but the law is faulty in its ability to rescue us from our sin. The law cannot rescue us from our sin. And so the Levitical priesthood, which is based on the law, as good as it was in serving its temporary purpose of providing sinners with temporary access to God through temporary priests offering temporary animal sacrifices, it was faulty. It was a faulty priesthood in providing sinners what they actually need. What do we need? We need eternal forgiveness through an eternal priest offering an eternal sacrifice. But then onto the scene comes Jesus, the divine king who is also a priest. But he's not a priest of the faulty Levitical priesthood. See, long before there was a Levitical priesthood, there was, I guess we could call it a Melchizedekan priesthood. I kind of made that up. But it was a, if we're going to have a Levitical priesthood, we've got to have one after the order. So we're just call it a Melchizedekan priesthood, which was better it was a better priesthood because it pointed to a better priest. It pointed to a priesthood which would not offer the law. It's so important. Don't, don't, don't check out yet. This priesthood, coming from Melchizedek, centered upon Jesus, was a priesthood that would not offer the law as the means of salvation, but would offer the priest himself as the means of salvation. It pointed to a priest who would offer a better sacrifice and who would be a better priest. He would offer a better sacrifice because instead of offering an animal who was not like humans, he would offer himself. And being a human sacrifice, he could actually take our place as a true substitute. And he would be a better priest because even though he would die and offering himself as a sacrifice, he would rise from the dead to live eternally, giving him the ability to always live to make intercession for us. You say, I still don't see where we're getting the word faultless from. Chapter 8 of Hebrews. Chapter 8 begins this way. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We're like, thank you, writer of Hebrews. You see what the point is. What's the point in all of this? 
He says the point in what we are saying, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Then verses 2 through 6, the writer again contrasts the priesthood of Jesus to the Levitical priesthood, that is the law priesthood, and he drives home this point. If you're looking in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant, that's the Levitical priesthood, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That may not seem like a very important verse, but it is. It holds the key which unlocks the magnificence of Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. You see, the first covenant was a covenant of law. If it had been faultless, if it had been able to rescue us from our sin, then there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant or a second priesthood. But it was faulty because it required perfect obedience, and none of us are perfect. And therefore it could not save. And therefore there is occasion to look for a second covenant, a second priesthood. And that second covenant is the covenant not of law, but of grace. That priesthood is the priesthood of Jesus. And unlike the first covenant and priesthood, the second covenant and priesthood, which centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ, church, is faultless. It is without fault. Here's what that means for you and me and every sinner. That means the priesthood of Jesus is perfect in providing an eternal intercession between sinners and God. Jesus Himself, He steps in between you and the righteous wrath of God and has absorbed the full blow of God's wrath through His death on the cross so that everyone who trusts in Him, who trusts in His intercession, who trusts in His death in their place and His resurrection from the dead is given a salvation which is both free and Because it's not built on the law, it's built on grace and perfect. Because it's Jesus who is the priest offering Himself as the sacrifice. Church, through Jesus, the divine priest, king, God has provided us with a faultless and forever salvation that is final in every way. It is finished, Jesus cried from the cross. It is final. Uh, God is crying from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Friend, there is no other way. As we will see next week in the final verses of this psalm, Jesus is coming back one day and He's coming to destroy His enemies. But friend, He came first to intercede for His enemies. To intercede for you and for me. And so will you trust in Him and Him alone for salvation today. Paul wrote to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And once you have trusted in Him for salvation, then church, will we daily fall at His feet in surrender, exalting the Lamb who was slain, making sure that the One who died for us is reigning over us, seated on the throne of our hearts. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Deeply theological, deeply practical, and deeply centered upon the exalted King of Kings. Church, may we trust in Jesus, our saving priest, so that we can bow to Jesus, our Supreme Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the intercessory work of Christ. God, we cannot come to You. And all the priests who came before Jesus, they, they, they did what they were supposed to do, but it wasn't good enough. 
We needed someone better. We needed someone like us, but someone who is not like us. We needed God to become man. And that's what Jesus did. And so, Father, just in this moment, if there's somebody here who's not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, right now Jesus is not interceding on their behalf because they have never chosen to place their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that you would draw their heart to you. And right now, in the stillness and quietness of this moment, they would pray to you. And they would say, God, I'm a sinner and I don't deserve to be in your presence. Not even for a moment. But God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue me from my sin. I thank you that he is the great high priest that I need. And Father, I trust in his sacrifice. I'm not trusting in my own good works. I'm not trusting in my own ability to try to submit to, to you. I'm going to trust in Jesus. That His death paid the price for every single one of my sins. And then God, I ask that You would change my heart so that I can submit to Jesus my Lord. Father, I pray for anyone who's just trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, I thank You for Your salvation. And God, for all of us who have trusted in Christ, whether we've just trusted in Christ today or we've been trusting in Him for many, many years, Father, our prayer is that we would we would give our all to Christ because He has given His all for us. God, may Jesus be exalted in our lives as individual Christians, in the lives of our families, in the life of this church. Father, the lives of churches all across our, our state and our country and this world. Father, so that we can shine brightly the light of Christ so that others who have yet to trust in Jesus the great high priest, can too hear the good news and trust in Him and be rescued forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.